This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. With all of the focus on native plants and native plant and habitat gardening, not only for the support of biodiversity in our life, but for the better management of our precious natural resources wherever we might live, I am very pleased this week to welcome back to the program Uli Lorimer. Uli is a native plant expert working with the Native Plant Trust out of the Northeast. He is the author of a recent publication entitled The Northeast Native Plant Primer, 235 Plants for an Earth-Friendly Garden. Uli, I am so excited to talk about this new resource for native plant gardeners, not only those there in the Northeast who will make the most use of it, perhaps, but for its organization and conceptual lessons that are important to all of us across North America and beyond for how we consider and approach native plant gardening. I'm really pleased to welcome you back to the program. Thank you for being with me. I am equally thrilled and pleased to be back here and really looking forward to our conversation. Thank you so much for the opportunity. So I will have asked you this question before, Uli, but I'm going to ask it again because it may have shifted a little for you in this last three years. If I ask you to give me a distilled kind of mission statement around your relationship with plants right now, what would that be, Uli? I would say that I feel even more committed than I did before to advocating for this sort of approach to gardening, to really trying to highlight and and show the beauty and diversity of native plants wherever they grow. Um, we're really trying to put aesthetics and ecological value on equal footing when it comes to making choices in a garden. For so long, we've had uh, aesthetics as the, the real main driver for why we garden and certainly all of the benefits of, of a beautiful space that, that we can relate to. And I think folks are increasingly looking at uh, adding ecological value to that approach. And I think the sum of those two things is really gonna be great for us as humans and even better for all the other wildlife that these plants support. To marry the two equally, aesthetics and ecological function, this marriage is an important one. And I love the way you have approached it in this book. And we're going to get to that a little bit more. First, take us, not all the way back, but take us to your work with the Native Plant Trust and remind listeners who might not be familiar with what the Native Plant Trust is, what its mission is, and your role there, Uli. Sure. So I serve as the Director of Horticulture for Native Plant Trust. We were formerly known as the New England Wildflower Society and changed our name about three or four years ago to Native Plant Trust. Um, we consider ourselves the first plant conservation organization in the United States. Um, we were founded uh, in 1900. And I see our work as, as uh, sort of a, a three-legged stool. The mission is to promote and conserve New England's flora for the future, and it's supported by plant conservation on one leg of the stool, by horticulture and, and public horticulture and display as a second leg of the stool, and then through public programming, so education, as the third leg of the stool. Um, our 
Plant Conservation Department has been running a very successful now nearly 30-year effort. It's, uh, it was conceived of as a citizen science mm. effort initially called our uh, New England Plant Conservation Program, or NEPCOP. And so we work to track populations of rare and endangered plants in all six states of New England. And the only way that we can do that is with the help of trained volunteers, or what we call plant conservation volunteers, PCVs. And so over the course of the 30-year 30 uh, 30 plus history of the program, we've trained over probably 2,000 volunteers who help us in assisting with collecting data, collecting seed, and monitoring rare plant populations in all counties in all six states of New England. And it's been a really sort of visionary approach that's been adopted and, and used as a, as a model uh, in other parts of the country and really recognizing that no one organization can do it all themselves. You, know, you really mm -hmm. have, to, you have to engage the public, you have to engage um, all the different entities. The other thing I think that's really special about the program is that every year we convene a meeting state by state with all the different entities and people who are involved in plant conservation all get into the same room and talk about the past field season, they set pr uh, conservation priorities for the upcoming field season. And I think and thereby really sort of embody this collaborative spirit that helps us really get the most amount of work done given the limitations on resources that all these individual uh, organizations face. Yeah. Um, we also maintain a seed bank of rare plants that uh, is also the result of you know 30 years of collecting and a massive database of all this information that we're just now really beginning to sift through. And so there's a, there's a lot of exciting stuff working in the plant conservation realm. Um, our public horticulture, our, the Garden in the Woods is a 45-acre botanic garden for which I'm responsible for daily operations of the garden, as well as um, we maintain a 75-acre nursery in western Massachusetts where we grow native plants from seed collected in the wild, um, and that feeds into our retail plant sales. Um, we do contract grows, for example, for National Park Service. We grew plants for uh, Arnold Arboretum other smaller land trusts, uh, and then plants that go on display here at the gardens. And then we also run over 200 field courses and uh, online courses uh, through our public programs department and really trying to bring together the educational component of all of this work and really make it accessible. We had actually transitioned many of our programs to online before the pandemic happened, and we're really well positioned because of that shift to really kind of weather this absolutely amazing increase in interest. Our public programs registrations were up 25, 30% in the earlier years of, of the pandemic. And so I think that was really wise move to make so that we can reach a broader audience this way. Right. And what I want to point out there is that it's setting up for really good success for our everyday gardeners, you know, like a me, a home gardener, to be able to be one of the, you know, as it were, citizen scientists or conservation volunteers on the ground with my own garden. And that's what I love that like setting gardeners up for the success of having a beautiful and contributing garden. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It makes me think of, a, of another sort of conceptual framework that I became aware of just in 2021. And perhaps you've heard of this too. It's, it's the concept of bioproportionality as opposed to biodiversity. Mm. 
Oh, I like that. And sort of uh, it sort of distilled the, the ideas that, you know, biodiversity, we, we assess as a list of different things. So you could look at a meadow and say there are, you know, 77 species of native plants in this meadow and, you know, a hundred and some species of uh, insects and so forth. And we have a, a, a way to quantify the diversity. But what it doesn't tell you is of the relative proportion and numbers of any one of those things. You could have one very rare plant in there and you could have 10,000 of something very common or 10,000 of, of even an invasive plant and they're weighted equally in the list. Mm. So the idea of bioproportionality is to say, well, what, how big does a population need to be in order to be self-sustaining and adaptable in the face of climate change? And I think that how this translates to the home gardener is that, you know, we have lots of common species, um, but I feel that the, the built environment is going to be increasingly more important. It's going to play a bigger role in the overall, you know, ecosystems and ecology of a region. And mm -hmm. by promoting the use of regionally appropriate, genetically diverse species, even of common species, we're ensuring that there are sufficient numbers of each of these different things to be able to interact with one another and to be able to adapt and change in you know what's what's becoming a very increasingly uncertain future mm -hmm. yeah and i i think that is a really important conceptual framework for all of us to be thinking about again no matter where we live and that idea of this important but often overlooked role of ethically sourced wild collected seed grown plants in order to make sure that the native plants we are putting into our landscapes doesn't diminish the overall uh, genetic diversity we're cultivating, but continues to increase it and contribute to it, which is something you just don't think about all the time. Um, you're trying to do the right thing. You go to the nursery, you get your native plants, you do your best. And and that was just a, a sort of aha conversation. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I find it's one of the bigger challenges in terms of messaging for yeah. you know, the native plant movement. Um, in that, that you know, genetic diversity is is a kind of abstract concept. Like you can't mm -hmm. look at a plant and and know if it is inherently genetically diverse or not. And and and, and the importance of how plants are grown, um, whether they're grown from cuttings or sexually or from seed all kind of figures into, you know, their inherent genetic diversity and therefore their ability to be able to adapt. Right. And I find that I, I keep coming back to this sort of more pragmatic approach, which is to say that using, let's say, a cultivar or a selection of a native plant is better than a non-native. Or if you're, you know, replacing a known invasive plant in your backyard with a cultivar of a native plant, that's a win. And I, I want people to feel encouraged and supported by making that choice and not not feel like they're doing it wrong if they don't have access to seed grown species wild collected that seems you know it's the the gold standard if you'd like but it's not always attainable by everybody right um, and it's really difficult to find those kinds of plants in the nursery so and i i really tried to just take a step back here um you know we're just bombarded with all of this bad news about what's happening in the environment Right. And thinking about how to calibrate the tone of this book, I really tried to make an effort to be 
hopeful and supportive and to, you know, leave people feeling uh, empowered to make more choices like that. Because I don't think you win a lot of friends by, you know, browbeating people and saying you don't, you're not mm-hmm. doing it right if you're not right. at this one extreme. Right. Um, and so that was really a really important consideration in, in how to, to write it, to make it accessible to the largest audience and to make sure that people understand that it's okay to use cultivars if that's what you have available. Yep. Yep. And I, and I really appreciate that because the reason we're here, all of us, whether we started gardening in 2020 or we've been gardening since we were little people is the joy of it, the beauty of it, the, the feeling of both, you know, kind of activism, but also uh, engagement with something much bigger than us. So it's a form of surrender as well. And so I think that tone is so essential at the same time. I also know that the gardeners out there listening, they are super smart and they are adapting as we go. And so the more they know, the more they can encourage and support our our distribution systems and our industries in reaching for that gold standard, not being browbeaten if we can't reach it, but knowing that it's there and continuing to strive for it. You know, that includes going to your independent nursery. If you don't have a garden in the woods or a wildflower center or a California botanic garden right next to you, going to your your local nursery or native plant society and saying, you know, I'd really like to get this seed grown plant. What do you think? Could we do it? Or I'd really like to help or attend a native plant plant sale. And, you know, just the more that's part of the conversation too, not in a browbeating way, I think the more tools every single gardener out there has to be part of this great cohort of um, change makers. Yeah. And I would add to, to also ask whether or not these plants were grown with pesticides. I think this is a yeah. really important question and yep. to, to realize that your, your dollar, your economic leverage um, has real weight behind it and that mm-hmm. the, nursery, the, the nursery industry does listen. And if enough people say, look, I, you know, I want you to guarantee that there aren't pesticides on this plant um, or, you know, a hundred people last year asked for, you know, seed grown native plants. So maybe we should start carrying some, you know, this is how we affect change. And I think it's, uh, it's important to add that perspective as well is that, you know, the, the use of, of pesticides in their nursery industry is, is again, one of these things you can't see, um, right. but has, has real dire effects in the environment. This is Cultivating Place. We're speaking today with Uli Lorimer, native plantsman and director of horticulture at the Native Plant Trust. His new book, The Northeast Native Plant Primer, 235 Plants for an Earth-Friendly Garden, is available now and it is a great resource. Stay with us. We'll be right back after a quick break for more with Uli when he'll share about the goals behind this new native plant primer. Hey, it's Jennifer. So last week I was sitting around a fire pit with a group of gardening women in central Ohio. We were enjoying a fall evening and good conversation when one of the women looked at me and very intently asked me this. So Jennifer, I have a question for you. Every week I spend time in my garden. 
I deadhead, I water, I plant new things, and often I weed. I'm not sure if what I'm weeding out of my garden might be a native plant or a non-native invasive. I just know I might not want it right there in that place. With this area, I cultivate and curate. And to me, it looks beautiful and it makes me and my family happy. Am I doing something immoral? Now, I can understand why she asked me this question, but still, it surprised me, and it got me worrying, and more importantly, wondering. I don't want to shame anybody. I really don't. I do want to engage and empower and energize. And I do, in fact, think of our gardens as not only places, but also as wayfinders and moral and social constructs as well as contracts. They are places in which we express ourselves and we express what we value. So I was really happy to be reminded in this conversation with Uli of the word or concept around proportionality, hearkening back to balance, hearkening back to moderation. I don't think it is either right or good for us as gardeners to be haphazardly or thoughtlessly using toxic chemicals, invasive plants, or too many of our world's natural resources without considering the impact on our families, our communities, including the non-human members, and our larger environments, and weighing these choices very carefully. The act of gardening is a powerful act in the positive and in the negative. And I also believe that proportionality is just the right litmus test. Not all of our gardens can host all of the plants for all of the species, nor can they be the healing bridge to all of our world's challenges. That's simply too much to ask for anybody, for any one garden. But if each garden does a little bit towards one or more of any of these, that is not too much to ask, and it goes a very long way. So my response to this friend was more in the form of questions. Are there areas of your garden or yard or neighborhood that are more wild and less controlled? Are there big native trees in and around your community? Is there some bare dirt for burrowing creatures and bees? Are there flowering plants most seasons of the year that the butterflies and bees and birds do visit? Is there a little fresh water in or around your garden, yard, or neighborhood? If so, then your flower border that you don't want to give over to the enthusiasm of the native hedgerow plants is likely doing no harm and doing you a lot of good. So there is no immorality in that. I don't have all the answers other than to keep gardening, use no chemicals, and provide for the birds and the bugs where and when you can. For me, I keep coming back to my three-part harmony analogy. Our gardens are three parts. One part personal history, one part the culture in which we live, and the third part in service and representation of the natural history of the region. All three strands have and need their place. 
at a garden's best, these have some proportionality. As we're fully into fall now and looking at our fall and winter planting and planning windows, we're speaking today with native plantsman Uli Lorimer, whose new book profiles 235 plants for an earth-friendly garden. As we come back, Uli shares more about the general goals behind this new native plant primer. I go back to all, all of the images in the book are mine. and I've been a, a photographer for a long time. And, you know, I started sort of amassing this, this uh, catalog of images primarily because it, I felt it helped me become a better speaker. You know, if I was giving a lecture and I could use my own images and there was always some personal anecdote that I could add to a particular image and, and it, 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 it made it more accessible. And I was in a conversation with uh, my good friend, Margaret Roach, who runs the uh, Away to Garden podcast. And uh, she's just a fantastic person all around. And and we were talking about just kind of various topics. And she's like, well, why don't you, you ever thought about writing a book? And I was like, I mean, I, I, I was open to the idea. And, um, and I can thank her because she was the one who put me in contact with Timber Press. And they were looking for an author for this Northeastern Native Plant Primer. The Native Plant Primers are part of a, a, a regional series, and there's one for the Southeast that's already out. There's one for the Midwest that's been um, published. And so they approached me and said, you know, you were recommended very highly, and um, what do you think? Would you like to write this book? And I thought this was a great opportunity. Um, the, the timing wasn't particularly great. I would say it was the beginning of the pandemic. My wife was pregnant with our second son, and um, and I had... You know, I had about eight months, seven months to pull this off before my life would be even more busier with, you know, two small children. So you had not a lot going on. That's what you're trying to point out? Exactly. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, it, this this whole thing was written primarily between the hours of eight and midnight, nearly every day. During <laughs> that. And, you know, it was a, it was a challenge because I, uh, I wanted to be, you know, have all this experience and technical knowledge. And I wanted to kind of pour all of that into the book. And I kept trying to remind myself that this is really aimed at non-professionals. And how do you write for, uh, um, for someone who hasn't been doing this kind of work for 20 plus years? Um, and I think that was probably one of the bigger challenges of, you know, going back and revising the text over and over again, and trying to think of it as, you know, how can I make this information as accessible as possible, but also share all of that experience that I had gained through, you know, uh, sweat and tears and dirty hands and, and having done the work for such a long time. And I, I just want to point out that knowing that you took all of the pictures really adds to anybody who is going through the book, whether you're just glancing through it or, or you're digging into it as the um, kind of blueprint for how you're approaching your, your new garden or your garden, you know, additions this coming season. Uh, it, it really illustrates not only the plants, but your deep love of them and your deep knowledge of them, because having amassed this kind of library, it, it, it becomes a sort of garden journal and it becomes a kind of garden or plant, um, you know, a love letter to to them in some ways, which I I love and I appreciate my own um, sort of photographic catalog for those very reasons. So, 
as you were approaching it, maybe walk us through the the table of contents in terms of how you built the blocks to create this conceptual framework that you are then going to add the different kinds of plants and then the different specific plants, Uli. What did you ultimately decide was important for any gardener to know? Well, I mean, I think I was thinking about some of the more frequent questions that I would get or things that that um, are a little bit harder to define. So, you know, like what is a native plant and what is regionally appropriate? Um, uh, before kind of diving into, you know, the the specifics of, you know, how do you analyze your site and the light conditions and the soil conditions. And I really wanted to kind of set up this framework of how we think about native plants to introduce the concept of ecoregions, um, which uh, is it's difficult, again, for, you know, many people can identify with state boundaries. Um, yep. But the plants don't care about our political designations. Um, and, <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're distributed across the landscape uh, based on other factors. So, you know, uh, geology and soil and hydrology and, and plant community type. And, and so that the ecoregion concept tries to kind of marry all of that together. And, and so I thought it was important at least to, to introduce that concept um, so that, you know, if you're trying to make you know, conscientious choices about a, a local or regionally appropriate native, it doesn't necessarily just have to come from your state. It can be from within a, an ecoregion. Yeah. And then um, trying to bring in some, you know, basic ideas about ecology. I oftentimes get the question about uh, or the comment that some natives are invasive or very aggressive. And it's not their fault because they've uh, evolved to occupy a particular niche in within plant succession. And so they may produce lots of vegetative growth, lots of rhizomes, or maybe they create a lot of seed and they seed themselves in and they've evolved to take over open space. And sometimes those are really the, that's the, the, the poorest choice you can make for a small garden. Um, and I think not, without that knowledge, um, people kind of set themselves up for a lot of maintenance and in the end, a lot of disappointment when they you know, tried to go native, but you know, maybe made an uninformed choice uh, and then ended up with something that, you know, they're struggling to get rid of or that's overwhelming some of their other plants. So trying to bring that kind of uh, a little bit of ecology into how we how we approach our gardens, I thought was important. And, you know, again, basic things like three-dimensional structure and a water source and you know, really trying to use plants as the ground cover instead of mulches and um, you know, looking at how Mother Nature does it, things are not mulched, they're not equally spaced apart, they don't occur in a line. Uh, plants grow very intimately with, with one another, and that's sort of the approach that you want to encourage in your garden. Yeah, and I, you know, I want to just go back a little bit to that idea of invasive, because of course the word invasive is uh, a human conceit, a little bit like a state boundary. Um, these plants are just wildly successful and or are in a place where they don't have a natural check and they're successful to the point that they push other people out uh, or other plants as it were. Sometimes people in the case of the Himalayan blackberry here in California, which will eat you alive. Mm -hmm. But the point being is that idea of observing, and it's one of the first 
sentences you have in the book is that, that the most important thing you can do is observe your plants and observe your place and try and interpret what you're seeing uh, to the you know most effective decision making. And I love how you have incorporated that idea of you know, what I think is sometimes termed matrix planting um, as, again, just a, a us trying to mimic the way we see Mother Nature taking care of or the plants in Mother Nature occupying space, that there are little plants underneath and there are ground covers and then there are bigger plants. And, you know, so I, I really liked that kind of organic understanding of what some of these concepts are in our world. I also really loved some of the pullout sections in the front, Uli, where you talk about different kinds of plants being the the larval or nectar or support source for different stages of different faunal life, whether that's birds, caterpillars, moths. Do you want to talk about how you approach that in the book? Yeah, I think that, that it was very intentional for me to continually kind of weave this thread of you know, ecological value or, or the, the idea that these plants support a great deal of life and that mm -hmm. by supporting insect life, you'll also be bringing in bird life, which people want to see in their gardens. And, um, you know, more insect life means more fruit, more seed, uh, more resources for other forms of life. Um, and so it was really intentionally and very, very important for me to, to put that message very front and clear and I try to weave it into as much as possible through all of the individual species descriptions um, so that you know again going back to what we were saying that that um, that the the ecological value of these plants is on equal footing with their aesthetics um, and that you know I I can't make a, a, an exhaustive list of all of the things that these uh, um, all the life that these plants support but you know, starting with pollinators and butterflies and moths, these are very accessible and things that people like to see in their gardens. Yeah. So that was, it was, it was a fun thing to research and, and, you know, hopefully it comes through that it's, it's important to think of those things too. Right. And I think it adds to this ever increasing library of books on our shelves that just automatically include this level of information. So it becomes just assumed level of knowledge for us as gardeners. I, I really appreciate that. And then, you know, the, again, going back to this idea that you have created this resource that's very specifically for the Northeast, but very useful for the rest of us as well, it is you've gone on to then use your own 20 years of history, but then the, you know, decades of history uh, behind Garden in the Woods as a native plant demonstration garden to, to fill out some of the information in how these plants behave, how they work together. And then you've grouped the kind of meat of the book into categories of plants. So, you know, trees, shrubs, vines, wildflowers, ferns, Grasses, sedges, and rushes all come together, and then annuals. And that right there gives us the cue that these are all levels of content or, you know, inclusion that we want to see in our gardens. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it seemed to make sense to start with trees as, you know, they are the, the main structural element of forests here in the Northeast and kind of work your way through to build that three-dimensional structure that we talk about as being so important um, for, um, for all life uh, and for ourselves too, quite frankly. Uh, mm -hmm. Again, uh, the, the challenge was to, to limit it to um, 235. Right. <laughs> Which is you know, hard. The, the other books had 225. And that's what I was told that, you know, was the, 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 the number to aim for. And I think I wrote 250 um, descriptions. And then we ended up trimming a few. I also made a very conscientious choice to only include species of plants and not cultivars of any natives. Um, and there's a there's there's a little you know explanation to that uh, before we get to you know the meat of the book, and I'm hoping that this will also help push some of the local growers to um, start offering some of these plants. They're fantastic garden plants. You know, if people know, you know, the first step is for people to know about them, and then they can ask for them, and um, hopefully, uh, you know, diversify and, and increase the palette of choices that people have available. This is Cultivating Place. We're speaking today with Uli Lorimer, Director of Horticulture at the Native Plant Trust. His newest book, The Northeast Native Plant Primer, is a great resource for an earth-friendly garden, featuring trees, shrubs, wildflowers, annuals, and more for gardens that give back. Stay with us. We'll be right back after a quick break for more on what Uli included in this primer and why. Hey, it's Jennifer, thinking out loud here. So what natives were a big hit in your garden this year? Any surprise new or old favorites? A new native plant friend to me, whom I met while visiting Ohio, was Boneset, or Thoroughwort, Eupatorium perfoliatum. Its bright white flowering stems were right at home in the hedgerows and woodland edges there, blooming alongside, you guessed it, asters and goldenrod or solidago. If you have new or old native plant favorites from your garden year, I'd love to hear about them or see them. Send me an email or better yet, pictures. You can email me at cultivatingplace at gmail.com or direct message or tag me on Instagram, where you will find me at cultivating underscore place. We're in conversation this week with native plantsman Uli Lorimer. As we come back, Uli is sharing more about the specific plants he included in this primer. And although he would have liked to feature 400 species, he is also thrilled that the 235 species plants he has profiled will include many that are new to many of us. I wanted to be sure that whatever I was including is something that you could conceivably go find out in the wild somewhere in the Northeast. And I made some, some effort to include plants that are well, boreal. So plants like balsam fir, uh, bunchberry, um, things that like to grow in 
cooler climates. So sort of a nod to our gardeners in Maine and Vermont, Hampshire, and upstate yep. New York, yep. as well as things that um, are sort of on the northern edge of their range. So something like fringe tree, for example, um, is a beautiful garden plant, but doesn't occur naturally in New England anywhere. Um, there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to, to plant it. So ecological value, certainly something uh, that I took into account. Um, their availability in the nursery trade was also important to me. Um, although I did, I did make a few choices of things that I don't think are available or very wild, widely available. Um, mm -hmm. uh, again, just trying to push that record, uh, push that a little bit further. And then I tried to think about, so for example, for the fern section, um, I wanted to include ferns that were clumping and then ferns that are sort of running and will spread. Because um, again, you have you can use them in different ways in the garden. Uh, some can be mm -hmm. used as an accent. Others are great to kind of fill in around larger plants, shrubs. Um, and to the extent that I could in the individual descriptions, I also tried to put in a sentence or two about how it might be used in a garden uh, or what it might pair well with. So that, you know, you can have an idea that, you know, if this is a fern that likes to spread, then you're going to expect it to move and, you know, you want to use it in a place where it can fill in space. Um, so taking those, all, all those things into account and um, probably the one section that, that, uh, that has generated the most conversation, I think, was the inclusion of annuals. Yeah. Um, and a lot of folks didn't realize that there are true annuals in the floor of the Northeast and that they can be used uh, in really wonderful ways in gardens. Um, but to also understand that they're not meant to be long-term members of a garden. Um, they can fill in space after, you know, after a planting or after you remove some invasives. They move around. Um, they can yeah. be easily edited. Um, they are guaranteed to flower the first year because if they don't, then, you know, that's, that's, what, that's what annuals are supposed to do. And so it's, it's, it's been really wonderful to see because it's generated all of this interest in, in people using annuals and not realizing that these plants that they thought were just weeds um, were actually real annuals and that had great ecological value. And you have, a, you have a section on both wildflowers and then on annuals. Is there some overlap there or like how, um, how did you determine wh which one went where? Well, I, th I thought of the wildflower section as all being perennial. Okay. And then annuals as, as you know, as being uh, really true annuals. You know, again, many people think of annuals from traditional horticulture as like bedding plants that aren't cold hard right. here. Uh, but many, Petunias. Yeah, or marigolds <laughs> or, you know, whatever. Like many of these plants are, are um, perennial in tropical climates but they get used here. And, and I, I have a, a little bit of a distaste for the idea of like throwaway plants, like annuals that, you know, there's a lot of resources that go into producing plants that are meant to be there for a little bit and then they die. And that's kind mm -hmm. of, I feel like it's a waste of, of a lot of, uh, of effort and resources um, to produce plants that are meant to be there for a couple of months. And then, you know, that they're just, they're, you're, you're throwing your money away, in my, my opinion. Um, why not have something that's perennial that'll come back every year? Or if right. you're going to use an annual, use one that's that's evolved and adapted to your conditions here, and it'll move around. Yeah. And, um, right. And by move around, I, I think you know you are you are uh, 
referring to the wonderful ability of many of our, especially our native annuals here, so I'm guessing it's similar in the Northeast, uh, to reseed themselves. So you get this lovely like, they're here this year, they're over there next year, they kind of gravitate where they want to go and where there's room for them. And, and they are one of those great groups of plants that also show us that full life cycle of going to seed and then dispersing. And, and I think that is a wonderful reason to include them if you want to get started with seed saving or um, you know try your hand at sowing your own seed. Uh, from ones you've collected. Yeah, no, they're they're really wonderful plants, and and I I, I felt you know too overlooked by by gardeners here in the Northeast. Um, yeah. So. Well, and seeing what you have in your annual, I just want to share that you absolutely taught me something. I had no idea that jewel weed was an annual. I see it in the summers in Rhode Island, and I. I, I never knew it was an annual. So there you go. Yeah. We, we all have more to learn all the time. <laughs> well, if I could add one, one delightful little anecdote to that. So in the springtime, when the seeds germinate um, of jewelweed, you sometimes come across uh, a very tight little clump uh, as, if, as if the seed had all been stashed in one place and then all germinated mm. in one place. And, and jewelweed, uh, um, one of its other common names is touch me not because the seed pods literally explode when they're ripe yeah. and they hurl the seeds a distance away. So, you know, naturally it's a very kind of dispersed um, kind of random pattern, but um, white-footed mice love to collect the seeds. And so uh. they will gather them up and stash them. And then of course they forget. Uh, and then in the springtime, they all come up in a little clump. And so when I see one of those, I know that there's been some mice that have been busy and it, it's a, uh, I, I just find it this very charming little, you know, scene in my head of uh, almost like something out of a Beatrix Potter novel where they've right. it and then, you know, gone off to their little homes thinking it was safe. And then the next spring it comes up in this wonderful little clump. That's such a great story. And, and again, such a wonderful, um, like cue for us as gardeners that once we know that now that you've shared it, 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 when we see it, we remember we're never alone here. Like our gar like we think sometimes it might appear that we're in our gardens alone, but we are never alone um, with the plants and the animals who who live with the plants and love them the same way and for the same reasons we do. Um, we're doing this for so much more than just our own pleasure. And and I also love that that jewel weed is an impatience. And so, you know, it's a nice, like this is one of the ways you can use the book in each plant profile, you get the Latin name, you get a common or several common names, you get a list of uh, the kinds of ecological faunal relationships that go with this plant, you know, designated by a, a little picture of a bee, a picture of a butterfly, a picture of a caterpillar, a picture of a bird, a picture of a toad, um, to give you a, just a quick, you know, just at a glance uh, understanding of what all this plant can help support. And then um, you, you talk about where you would naturally find it uh, ecologically, a meadow, a grassland, an outcrop, a disturbed area, woodland. Um, and then you get, uh, again, really simple, easy to read, like it should get about this big. 
it prefers this exposure, full sun, two to three feet, say for instance. And then you have this lovely description that you have come up with based on your longtime experience, the experience at the garden in the woods, and um, I'm sure other people's input as well, followed by some very beautiful photographs. Yeah, I'm I'm particularly happy with the with the little icons. Um, I think mm -hmm. my, my favorite is probably the little frog one. Um, I love that frog. It's, you know, I, I, in our in our rush to identify what insects these uh, plants support, um, we sometimes overlook the fact that they are also you know habitat and food for mammals and amphibians and. Uh, mm -hmm. salamanders and frogs and so forth and you know there's a couple aquatic plants in there too and so um it was really important for me to say look you know it's not just about the insects and the birds and the butterflies but um all all life um that these things could support um so that was one of my favorites to include um you know writing the writing the the profiles was challenging um you know i had you you sometimes especially if you're if you have to write 200 plus of these, um, you try try not to fall into you know the same pattern of using the same language and, and describing them. And so, um, really trying to find ways to say a lot about the plants was it was fun. It was actually a really fun challenge. Um, the kind of you know it 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 stretched my creative writing abilities a little bit. So, um, but I had a lot of fun doing it. I bet you did. And I bet in some cases, it made you think more fully about the plants you know so well in order to be able to share that, like that story about the 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 mouse. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking uh, one of my favorites is the, the description for uh, Clethra for summer sweet, which is just winding mm -hmm. down its, its bloom times here. Um, and it's the kind of thing that um, you know, as the description states, you drive past swamps in the summertime and you roll your windows down and there's just this wonderfully sweet fragrance that wafts into your car as you're, you know, going by. Uh, and I don't know how many people know, you know, what the source of it is, but um, it's one of those, it's almost sort of a nostalgic smell that reminds me of summer, reminds me of like field work in the Pine Barrens, New Jersey, and just, um, it, it's like a, a, a time and a place. And mm -hmm. so really mm -hmm. trying to um, incorporate that into a description and saying, look, you know, this has personal meaning for me. Um, and it's something that maybe other people have done and didn't make the connection that it was that plant that um, was perfuming the air so nicely. Yeah. Um, and that's another great example of a, of a genus that is um, native all along the the north and southeast coast and into the Midwest. So one that a great many people will uh, have familiarity with. If you had five plants, maybe it's a genus, maybe it's a family, but uh, five plants you would like people to know more about and consider including in their gardens as they are approaching this fall season and the fall and winter planting window what would they be? Uh, that the my favorite plant question. Um, I, uh, <laughs> I I sometimes like to frame this as my current plant crush. 
Uh, Good. Because I like it because uh, it, it changes. Um, but yep. so um, I think for for trees, I think uh, anything in the oak genus and Quercus um, is a is a favorite. Um, they are just really wonderful, long lived, um, you know, structural. Um, they're just beautiful organisms, um, and um, in many cases will outlast our lifespans and maybe that of our children as well. Um, so I think there's a, there's there's a million reasons to plant oaks. So there's that's definitely one of my top five. Um, I think in terms of plant families, the aster family, the composite family, uh, is a very important one coming into the fall planting season. Um, we have so many different great choices of asters and goldenrods and other members of that family uh, here in the Northeast. Um, and they play such an outsized role in uh, providing resources for, uh, for butterflies, for, you know, for monarchs, so they can tank up on their trip south, um, for all of the bees and pollinators and wasps, um, for the seeds that su support all of the um, seed eating birds and migratory birds that come through. Um, and I think it's also, it, it adds to this really wonderful sense of place. You know, what, what would New England be without, you know, purple New England aster and, and the yellow of goldenrods splashed all over the fields here. Um, I think it's very sort of quintessential to the place as well. Um, I think for uh, continuing the theme of, of you know, pollinator powerhouses, uh, mountain mints, pycnanthemums uh, are really fantastic plants. Um, we've had uh, probably the most activity in our garden here in August on our mountain mints. Um, you know, literally every flower has some sort of bee or wasp or beetle or something on it. Um, it's just been absolutely an explosion of activity. Um, so I think they're, they're a really fantastic group of plants. Uh, and then um, I'll throw one more in for, for the springtime, um, trilliums. Um, mm. You know, trilliums have long been a love of mine. Um, I think they're very charismatic. Um, I, I like that um, trilliums kind of, to me, embody uh, the concept of delayed gratification. <laughs> they they grow slowly and you have to wait for them and then you know they coax these beautiful blossoms and then if you're continuing to be patient in 10 years you can have a clump with you know six stems full of blossoms and and, uh, mm. and they just get better every year um and i think there are a few things like you know spring woodlands in the in the east and the northeast particularly with carpets of trilliums on the on the forest floor as we end now, Uli, and you you think about the work and and you you know you think about the joy and and you know putting a lot of that together into this book, is there anything else you would like to add about your own personal growth or insights from this work or or calls to action for the gardeners out there listening today? I think that um, the entire ecological horticulture native plant movement has really grown in popularity over the past couple of years. And I, I dare say something that perhaps a, a, a bright spot to come out of a global pandemic has been the increased interest in um, gardening and in people's uh, and using native plants. 
And for somebody who has advocated for this for such a long time, it feels very good. It's very satisfying that the message is being heard and it's beginning to filter its way into more mainstream channels and, uh, and, and people are really beginning to listen to uh, and understand why it's important. As the um, you know, proud father of a four and a half year old and a one and a half year old now, their lives have also added in sort of new dimension and, and in some ways urgency to uh, my work because they will inherit the earth after we're gone. And I wanna make sure that as much as I can, that they inherit a, a you know, wild and beautiful place in the same way that I did when I was their age. And so that's been a huge motivating factor to continue to do this work and continue to advocate and continue to try to win more friends over to the use of native plants. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. It has been a great pleasure to have you back. Thank you very much. I always enjoy our conversations. Uh, Again, thank you so much for the opportunity, Jennifer. Uli Lorimer is a career-long native plant advocate. The director of horticulture at the Native Plant Trust, Uli's new book, The Northeast Native Plant Primer, 235 Plants for an Earth-Friendly Garden, is a great resource no matter where you garden. plants and place and favorite fall garden friends. I'm going to follow up this week's five plants recommended by Uli Lorimer of the Native Plant Trust and his new Northeast Native Plant Primer. Asters and Solidago. They're on Uli's top five plants he wouldn't garden without right now, and they are an all-time fall favorite native plant combination in many of our gardens and by Mother Nature in meadows, slopes, and roadsides across the entire expanse of North America. For those of you who have read Robin Wall Kimmerer's Braiding Sweetgrass, you might remember that one of the questions that compelled her to study botany in college was to answer the questions, why do asters and goldenrod look so beautiful together? purple asters, and yellow goldenrod. It's pretty close to perfection. As Uli Lorimer mentioned, both plants are in the Asteraceae family. Also often called Michaelmas daisies, the native North American asters were botanically differentiated away from the genus aster into several other genera over the past 50 years. These include Dolaringia, Eurebia, Oristema, and Symphytotrichum. The last one, Symphytotrichum, includes many of the North American asters now, although most nurseries and growers that I've looked into still include the older aster genus name as a synonym to the new name. In our garden, we have two or three solidagos, a tall-ish native solidago canadensis, a somewhat shorter and clump-forming solidago californica, and solidago rugosa fireworks, which has a fantastic horizontal branching of the flowering stem. 
This is useful to pollinators. This is useful to flower arrangers. And this is beautiful and eye-catching for garden designers. We also have a variety of purple and white asters, including North American natives and several California and Western natives. My purple aster Nova Englii and the white aster Monte Cassino play particularly nicely off of one another in the garden and in a vase. As their roadside family members will attest, many asters and solidago like pretty full sun and can take very low water and very lean soil and still bloom heartily come autumn. The solidago name is from the Greek for to make whole or to make well, which speaks to its traditional uses and healing properties. These two plant groups make beautifully healing bridges between our cultivated gardens and our beleaguered pollinator pathways and fragmented wildlands. Include them wherever you can, and now's a good time to plant them. And then sit back and enjoy the show. One of the things I love about the way Uli has set up this book is its extensive and very useful at-a-glance lists. Uli attributes his love of lists and his skill in making them to Dr. John Frett, his herbaceous studies professor at the University of Delaware. There are lists for deer resistance, fall color, drought tolerance, salt tolerance, good evergreen choices, and of course, a great list of good larval food host plants. Many of these lists include asters and goldenrods. That's all in this week's show notes under the podcast tab over at cultivatingplace.com. Listen in next week when we take a little poetic backtrack, revisiting our conversation with Colorado gardener, professor, and award-winning poet Camille Dungy, author of the collection Trophic Cascade. Join us next week. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio, licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible by listeners just like you. With special thanks most recently to Kent Crowell, Mary Bayliss, and Doug Mandel. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler with tech and web support from Angel Haracha. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.